following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. There have existed alternative forms of Christianity which have very recently gained recognition among scholars. Although much of that criticism applies only to the past. What many are not willing to recognize is the existence of a modern esoteric Christianity. This term esoteric or esotericism implies that which is hidden, secret, obscured from the public. The roots of this esoteric Christianity are very ancient. They are even older than Christianity itself, the first Christian sects. The reason for our studies is to approach the science by which we can experience the truths contained within religion. However, for modern scholasticism and the tendency amongst many spiritual groups is to compartmentalize knowledge, to label things within easy categories, within labels, within a structure. And there is credence and value to this. But the reality is that individuals, groups, and systems are complex. They are subtle. They are nuanced. The tendency to approach religion with our assumptions 
our preconceptions of what is there really demonstrates for us the fundamental nature of belief, which really constitute a set of values, philosophical approaches, for making sense of life. Beliefs can create a sense of order in a world that is falling apart. However, we have to recognize that beliefs have a very limited utility when it comes to practical spirituality. Due to this tendency, many have approached modern Gnosticism as another such system of belief. But I'd like to present something different and to ask us to reflect on a very important principle. As is demonstrated by the Gnostic scriptures themselves, their mere existence, the Gnostic teachings, we find that this wisdom strikes at the heart of what it means to believe, but more importantly, what does it mean to possess knowledge from experience? To know divinity, not from a theory, not from an idea or what we've read, or conviction without evidence. Instead, it has to do with facts. Gnosis is a living tradition. It was made and is made of many mystery schools which had gone underground, primarily to avoid persecution and corruption when exposed to humanity. It's a natural law when the divine provides exceptional and expedient knowledge for transformation, eventually when exposed to humanity, to degeneration, to vices. Traditions become adulterated. They fall apart. When the adherents of those disciplines no longer enact and fulfill the requisite values upon which such traditions are based. While this occurred even with early Christianity, this dynamic persists even today. This is why the real keys for unlocking such knowledge, such enigmatic writings, were never given to the public for millennia. And there's a very good reason for this. Humanity with its prejudices, its biases, its assumptions, translates and interprets according to the conditioning of our psychology. 
Therefore, such wisdom was only given to those who had earned it, not to the uneducated, the inexperienced, or we could say the uninitiated. Because these scriptures lose their essential message when we lack the key. And more importantly, when we are not willing to reflect upon their significance within our own life with full objectivity and self-criticism, with analysis, with investigation. This knowledge is now being given openly, out of compassion, before to really receive these kinds of teachings and instructions, scriptures and knowledge. One had to be a part of a group in the physical world for a very long period of time. But now we are in a very different era where scriptures that were once hidden and unavailable to the public are now immediately present. You can pick up your iPhone and find the Gnostic Gospels. You can find teachings that were obscured for thousands of years, for a long time, with ease. This kind of reality is unprecedented in our history. But it's also important to remember that while we have an abundance of scriptural knowledge, the task is incumbent upon us to know how to interpret. When approaching these studies, it's also important to examine our motives. Do we sincerely seek to understand the causes of our suffering, and more importantly, the suffering of others? Are we willing to sacrifice behaviors and views that produce conflict, discord? Or do we approach spirituality with ambition, with vanity, with selfishness, to impress others with obscure knowledge, or to acquire power. The esoteric Gnostic Christian tradition has methods and practices, procedures, by which we can comprehend all of this. How to become better people, to change, to help others. And in that process of embodying the most elevated ideals of humanity, we approach divinity from experience. We investigate these divine truths through experimentation, through analysis, through inquiry, to investigation. But first, in order to do this, one must understand that which conditions our psychological states so that by understanding them, we could remove them. 
in the process of self-transformation, Gnostic scriptures become very useful. But when isolated from the core teachings that inform their being, their genesis, their secrecy, these texts become elusive at best and even useless. Understanding Gnosis, Gnostic Gospels, without exception, requires initiation into the codes by which such scriptures were written, which specifically are known as Kabbalah and alchemy. We're going to elaborate what these two sciences are today. Because without an understanding of what these principles are, it's impossible to understand what the Gnostics were referring to. Because those were the codes in which those scriptures were communicated. Just as appreciating Shakespeare requires a strong knowledge of English, likewise interpreting the Gnostic scriptures requires facility with the symbols, the methods, the allegories, the parables, the mystical language in which they were written, in which they were disseminated. We will examine today the necessity for evaluating our concepts, especially regarding the Gnostic traditions, in what manner the Gnostic Gospels were composed, and why. We're also going to examine how the esoteric Christian tradition was forced underground, only to reemerge to the public in the 1950s. I cannot emphasize enough, the Gnostic Gospels are truly compelling. They are practical writings for those who are initiated into its systems. We will take some time to elaborate upon the practical roots of Gnostic scriptures because they challenge our millennia-old beliefs, our assumptions, our theories, as well as the limitations of such beliefs. The term Gnosis is not well understood today. While literally indicating knowledge, Gnosis is not limited to a particular geography, or history, or denomination. Just as water has many names, but is prevalent throughout all cultures, likewise Gnosis, which is the experience and the knowledge of divine truth, from personal testimony, is eternal. Many messengers, many prophets, many luminaries taught humanity about the origin of spiritual life, but their languages are different. The symbols and codes they use are unique to a given culture. However, the essence of what they taught is the same. As a tradition, Gnosticism constitutes the secret doctrines of Christianity. 
which precisely stipulate the following. As stated in the Gospel of John, Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. From the book of John, chapter 8, verse 32. Many modern scholars and students of religion are really fascinated by the early Christians, the Gnostics, because their teachings differ greatly in terms of their content and especially their pedagogy in relation to modern Christian dogma. Rather than exclusively believe in the personality of Jesus, the Gnostics taught and teach how Christ is an internal principle, something that must be developed, and that salvation does not depend upon following a system of belief. It's found in awakening to our true nature by comprehending and eliminating the obstacles to our own redemption. Gnostic Christianity teaches a personal, experiential relationship with the divine. It does not require mediation from a priest, from a rabbi, from an imam, from any theology, from any idea or group. Gnosis is what we know from our own investigations, based on facts. Some have argued traditionally that Gnostic Christianity interpreted their mysteries through pagan symbolism, and there's some credence to this. However, Gnosticism extends very far beyond any particular geography, including the Middle East, the Holy Land, any particular language, any individual messenger, any historicized or localized group. Through studying and applying these principles, we can verify this truth for ourselves. The universality of diverse spiritual traditions. We begin to see the essential thread that unites them, which is direct experience of the truth. The Gnostic tradition, like many other mystery traditions, was maintained within secret societies or esoteric schools, which could only be accessed by candidates who had demonstrated their maturity, their ethics, their dedication, specifically to transforming themselves so that they could benefit humanity. Therefore, much scholarship in modern interpretations surrounding the essential nature of Gnostic doctrine is wrong. Most scholars of Gnosticism even admit this. What little history we have acquired regarding the first Christian groups and their teachings has some problems. First, it's obscured by a lack of material. We can't really construct a comprehensive picture of their faith. We have ideas, we have assumptions, we have correlations, 
We have studious analyses of different texts by scholars and renowned academics. But the truth is that there's a lot that's missing. And because universities and scholars do not have access to methods and means for investigating these on a deeper level in a spiritual sense, their judgments are incipient, insufficient. They've not received training within the mystery schools that are living the teaching. Therefore, they can't comment. It's beyond their scope. Secondly, the knowledge that we have is filtered. We have many biases and assumptions, many ideas, as I said. But we have to remember that what little we possess of such Gnostic treasures has been pieced together. The essential knowledge of the Gnostics was never written down. It was written in code, what little we have. Most of that knowledge was transmitted orally through a secretive chain of transmission between master and disciple. Therefore, what remains of their doctrine is very limited. It's like a door without a key since a lot of their teachings were destroyed. As evidenced by this statement by Manly P. Hall in The Secret Teachings of All Ages. The entire history of Christian and pagan Gnosticism is shrouded in the deepest mystery and obscurity. For, while the Gnostics were undoubtedly prolific writers, little of their literature has survived. They brought down upon themselves the animosity of the early Christian church. And when this institution reached its position of world power, it destroyed all available records of the Gnostic cultists. Therefore, to truly understand the Gnostics, one has to be an initiate. One has to be a member of the initiatic living mystery school. Now, this statement can seem problematic. We're not referring necessarily to a physical group or school because there are many Gnostic institutions that teach what we are teaching. When I am referring to the Living Mystery School, I am specifically referring to states of consciousness that are beyond mere physicality. We practice the signs of meditation so that we can withdraw the senses, enter within profound introspection, and learn to experience our internal reality. Some people may be familiar with dreams. Some people call it astral projections, astral experiences, lucid dreaming. We're going to be giving a course very soon on that topic, but i just like to synthesize for you that there is knowledge accessible to us beyond the physical body, and that the consciousness can learn to Gain lucidity, clarity, confidence, familiarity, skill, efficacy, abilities within the dream state so that we're no longer dreaming there. And we can learn to access knowledge that is far beyond what is conceivable with our materialistic theories. 
The living mystery schools in the Gnostic Church are in these internal realities, these internal worlds. It's something that we can verify and experiment with to test, to know, to witness. It's important that we learn to approach this knowledge without believing or disbelieving, but merely experimenting with it, testing its principles, its hypotheses, so that we can know from facts what is the reality here. Because physical senses are very limited. Intellectual knowledge that we gather from books does not really give us the full picture of the reality of a thing. Intellectual knowledge is useful in its place, but it is not the core purpose of why we approach this type of spirituality. Comprehension and understanding is born from experience. It's not acquired by merely reading a book or attending a lecture. It's something much deeper than that. So we have many practices that we provide so that you can verify these things, if that is your wish. Now, in relation to the Gnostic Gospels, some have referred to them as the Apocrypha, from the Greek apokryptine, to hide away. We can hear within this etymology the word cryptic, that which is indecipherable, archaic, obscure. This term includes religious scriptures not included within the standard canon. It can apply to biblical books from early Christianity, such as the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is not included in the Hebrew Bible. Apocrypha can also signify texts which are considered a, of doubtful authenticity, which, despite their prevalence may be questionable, even though they are accepted commonly. For the purpose of our studies, we are examining these apocryphal texts because they challenge us. They challenge well-established assumptions about the essential nature of Christianity, about Christian dispensation, about faith, about reality, about experience, about investigation, about knowing. Many have tried to prove these scriptures false because it's truly frightening, if you think about it, to conceive that we in the West, our Western culture, which prides itself on its magnificence, its worldly materialism and glories, really stands on mistaken foundations. This is why we study meditation very deeply and practice it, so that we can verify and test these truths to discriminate with knowledge, with insight, with intelligence. The Nakamani scriptures are Coptic texts. They were discovered in 1945 by a group of Egyptian peasants in Upper Egypt. They were digging for fertilizer near a boulder when they discovered a sealed jar thinking they might have found gold and overcoming the fear of unleashing a jinn, which is a 
bottled spirit. They broke the jar and found the codices written in Coptic. Coptic, which was influenced by Greek, originally descended from ancient Egyptian language. The former having been superseded by Egyptian Arabic. Coptic is a form of the Egyptian language that was used, I believe, from the Roman period up until more recent times. The Nag Hammadi scriptures are approximately 50 different Gnostic texts constituted by 13 leather-bound papyri, bound books, which are not scrolls. A lot of supposition is has been spread and focused upon the origins of these texts. They were most likely buried in the second half of the 4th century Common Era. And while originally written in Greek during the earliest centuries of the Christian movement, such texts were translated into Coptic, possibly by early Christian monks. This is what scholars like Marvin Myers and Elaine Pagels believe. Supposedly, these monks translated these texts despite the accusations in spring of 367 by Athanasius, the Archbishop of Alexandria, who was calling for believers to reject what he called, quote-unquote, heretical, illegitimate, and secret books, end quote. Instead, the texts were conserved in a jar, they were buried, and then they were miraculously found 1,600 years later. The Dead Sea Scrolls were surrounded in mystery as well, a deep history that you can read about, especially on deadseascrolls.org.il. They were initially discovered by treasure-seeking Bedouins near Qumran by a nomadic group of people near the northern end of the Dead Sea. There were excavations of various documents, papyri, which were written on goat and sheepskin scrolls. Many of these were mostly written in Hebrew, but also in Greek and Aramaic. I'm going to present to you a few contents, or actually most of the contents from the Dead Sea Scrolls, so that you can have a sense of what exactly was found before we go into a deep analysis about the Gnostic Gospels themselves. There were biblical scriptures, all except the book of Esther. These are the oldest existing copies of these texts. So you can imagine this is a huge find for archaeologists. There were translations of scripture in Greek and Aramaic, which was the language commonly spoken in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago. There were tefillin, which are prayer parchment slips. If you're familiar with the Jewish tradition, when praying in synagogue, one wears tefillin, which are phylacteries, black leather straps around one's arm, and a box, a black box with prayer parchment slips, the, as you see in this, uh, or as you see in the word tefillin themselves, which are placed in the black box that you wear on your forehead, between your eyebrows. A representation of how we have to wrap ourselves within prayer, deep devotion, especially of our mind.
controlling our mind, devotion to divinity. There are mezuzot, prayers that are placed in the doorposts of houses. Usually you find a cylindrical object that has the Hebrew letter Shin, representative of Shaddai el Chai, the Almighty Living God, within Hebrew, a sacred name. Mezuzot are prayers written by rabbis that are placed within these mezuzot, which are situated on the doorposts of Jewish homes. We also have Apocrypha. These are Catholic and Eastern Orthodox canons, not part of Hebrew and the Protestant Bible. This includes Ben Sira, the Book of Tobit, and the Epistle of Jeremiah. You also have calendrical texts, which are solar rather than lunar calculations, which document the festivals, the ceremonies, and the priestly courses of uh, those communities, sometimes written in cryptic script. There are exegetical texts, which are Explicit analyses and interpretations of biblical works. If you've gone on our website, you've found we talk about many scriptures. We provide exegeses, which are commentary on different obscure verses within various traditions. Here in the Nagamadi, I'm sorry, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find that there were many exegetical texts about the Bible, including Peshir, relating to biblical prophecies that are applied to historical moments. You also have historical texts, which are numerous historical events with theological and moral commentary. And there are also legal texts as well. Rabbinical halakha, which mean the Jewish laws and customs of those communities. Relating to the Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with Leviticus and Deuteronomy especially, which outline a lot of the Jewish law, which mystical texts like the Zohar comment upon. There are parabiblical texts, retelling, expansions, and embellishments of biblical stories or legal texts. There is poetical and liturgical texts, hymns and prayers that people use in synagogue or in many ceremonies relating to biblical poetry. There are sapiential uh, texts relating to wisdom or knowledge. It's a continuation of the wisdom tradition of Proverbs. The book of Job, Ecclesiastes, some Psalms, Ben Sira, and the Wisdom of Solomon. And there are also sectarian texts which interest a lot of scholars, which are the unique theology, worldview, and history of the Essenes, or Yehad, community. There's a lot of uh, obscurity about who the Essenes were. Their history is very hidden from materialistic science and archaeology, but this is something that we can investigate within our meditations to go deep and to learn the history of these groups, if that is our wish. Now, the question becomes, what is at stake by studying the Gnostic Gospels? Despite their novelty within the context of Christianity's evolution in the public sense, the presence of Gnostic scriptures asks us to revise our assumptions our convictions, our beliefs, which for many obviously can be a source of discomfort. There's a lot at stake for mainstream Christianity when approaching the origins and the significance of their tradition. This is why many people simply dismiss the Gnostic Gospels as heresy, as inauthentic, as satanic. But regardless of whether or not they are true, 
Their presence asks us to and compels us to present an uncomfortable question. What do we really know? What do we know about Jesus? What do we know about ourselves and divinity? We're basically asked to question what it means to believe and what it means to know. While it's difficult even to believe in a tradition today, as evidenced by the prevalence of atheism in the West, especially North America, it is even more difficult to experience religion. Simply because for the modern mind, which is conditioned by its own skepticism, such possibilities don't even exist for it. It's incompatible with the materialistic dogma that has perpetuated and conditioned our Western worldview. But the reality is, even if we may be in a religion, we still are very materialistic, primarily because we deny that it's even possible to experience these things. When someone says they have experienced divinity, we look at them like they're crazy. But it's sad that this is the general outlook and attitude. Because all religions are teachings from individuals who experience divinity. If you look at scriptures such as the Quran, there are really many surahs that simply are of the Prophet Muhammad contesting with the unbelievers who reject his testimony, much like the ancient Christian prophets and masters or the Hebrew rabbis, the enlightened ones, who constantly had to contend with very doubtful people. So there's nothing new under the sun here. But rather than dismiss the Gnostic Gospels, it's better to really examine the situation. Rather than follow the easy, dismissive, and unscientific path of just rejecting what doesn't fit our worldview, that which is not palatable for us, we can really come to the conclusion that there must be reasons why we don't have this knowledge. I'm not talking about from a book or from a scripture, but from experience, from verification, from meditation. Part of why we don't know these things is due to our inherent tendencies, such as mechanically taking in information. We always like to compare data that we receive with our memories, with our knowledge. Perhaps you're listening to this lecture and comparing what I'm saying to what someone else said or to a book you've read or to a lecture you heard or to a scripture you were studying. The mind can only compare thesis and antithesis. Point A and point B can only look at the correlations between them. It can store data. It's useful for basically storing information. But when it comes to trying to experience what these scriptures entail, the mind, with its over-dependence on rationalization, tends to become the obstacle, a very chatty, distracted, and disoriented mind. We tend to project our thoughts onto the reality before us, and therefore we don't really see what is new. We also like to compartmentalize, 
information we've heard so that it fits a certain box, an a priori assumption. And most people get stuck there. They don't go any further. And it's unfortunate because there's really more to life and experience as evidenced by the Gnostic Gospels than is merely assumed or lived or believed. Rather than see a phenomenon for what it is, we tend to just merely interact with our concepts. And we can say that this is really a profound state of sleep, spiritually speaking, unconsciousness, not really knowing ourselves, not really knowing our full potential or what we could do. The reason why this happens is that there's comfort within structures. There's complacency within belief systems. They provide us with a sense of order. They give us cohesion. When we approach a world that is really afflicted and afflictive with a society that is really backwards, upside down, you just simply have to look at the news to see what's happening, even in the Middle East right now, or in different cities. It's distressful. And the truth is that if you look at the conflict going on in Israel right now, you find that people have their firm convictions and beliefs why the enemy is wrong. Beliefs don't change anybody. Our religion, our attitudes, our beliefs don't really affect a lasting, profound, and deep spiritual realization. If you don't believe me, you can simply examine your own life. We can think and feel one day that something is true, and yet that changes. Our ideas change. Our political parties change. Our religions change. And yet we continue to suffer. People change religions and political parties, ideas, like changing clothes. These tend to be very superficial and worn like regalia or a costume in order to fit in with a specific group. But unfortunately, that does not really penetrate the depth of the consciousness of really altering the fundamental trajectory of our life, of examining what behaviors we enact that really produce problems for ourselves and for others and learning to change them. We can change our political affiliations and ideologies. And yet we can continue to be unhappy. To be burdened with problems, with pain. Therefore, if these are impermanent, the question becomes what isn't? What is permanent? What is real? Isn't it facts born from experience? The most real thing that we can come close to, that we can approximate? that we can agree upon. But unfortunately, when it comes to spirituality, we have many assumptions and vague notions about what spirit, what divinity, what Christ is. Because people's basic terminology and definitions are completely different from one another, then it's not factual. It's a belief. It's not based in evidence. It's not the raw experience of a thing. So 
This is why knowledge, when it's divorced from practice, is really useless. Studying, accumulating information in the intellect, but not deeply changing our daily states is a waste of time. We can use scripture and these teachings and the Gnostic Gospels to inform the basis of a ethical lifestyle. But without the effort and the will to work, it won't get us anywhere, unfortunately. If our knowledge does not rectify our suffering, then it's necessary to revise our method. What is the common saying? It's the definition of madness to keep repeating the same thing, expecting a different result. This is why Gnosis exists. But traditionally, this knowledge has been so revolutionary that it had to go underground because most people can't accept it. And whether you're new or have studied these teachings for some time, you can simply go on the internet to realize this fact. How many people don't get it. But that's okay. People are at their level. They have their beliefs and we respect them. As for our personal life, we work with what is effective and try to provide clarity for those who need it, who want it. Some people merely hear this knowledge about this type of instruction and they dismiss it because it doesn't fit preconceptions. And there's some truth to that and it's a natural sentiment to not want to feel challenged in one's beliefs, our identity. We feel offended when someone criticizes perhaps even our taste in music or our religion. It's a natural reaction or instinct. But if we want to go deeper in our understanding of these principles, it's important to question that reaction. This is why this wisdom was traditionally only given to people or candidates who prove their willingness, their maturity. To understand who the Gnostics were really requires initiation, meaning entering a discipline into the tradition in which they practice, which has to do with our inner experiences by practicing meditation, by verifying these truths within oneself. Now, contrary to popular assumption, this tradition has indeed thrived throughout many centuries in very different ways, sometimes subversive, always hidden, but always adapting to the so uh, social, the cultural, the religious climate of different periods in history. There have been many figures throughout history who have known and practiced Gnosticism, yet many of them never announced their allegiance because it was risky. We now live in an era of information, as I said, that is unprecedented. We have access to knowledge that was veiled for millennia. However, since there is so much confusion surrounding it, Humanity has been granted access to this knowledge so that they can gain clarity, orientation. This is the purpose of the Gnostic Gospels and the Gnostic teachings. These are the teachings of a mystery school. But as I mentioned, what is a mystery school? Some people only like to think that they are groups far removed from the past. 
But the truth is that they are a living entity that sustain and emerge and last in accordance with the work of the individual practitioners who belong to those groups. So there are physical groups, as I said, but more importantly, the Gnostic Church is within this superior internal worlds, which we access when we physically go to sleep, we enter deep meditation, and we awaken within those states. This is not a theory. It's not a belief. Personally, for me, it's, this is not what I believe. This is something I practice. And so I invite you to study and enter that discipline yourself. So, as we said, scholars often have not been initiated into Gnosis. Specifically, the practices that allow aspirants to really acquire this knowledge for themselves. What we are providing here is verifiable through experience, through study and practice. It's not a belief. If some people wish to make Gnosticism into another belief system, that's okay. That's their, their path. They can do that. But that's personally not why uh, we at this school are providing these lectures. That's not a reflection of the reality and purpose of this teaching. We can only really understand this through study and looking at some of the historical trends we, we can do, but more importantly, living this esoteric knowledge. But in order to kind of emphasize and provide a distinction between the different forms of Christianity that emerged, I'm going to relate to you some quotes from Dion Fortune, who wrote in a book, The Training and Work of an Initiate, about some of the history of the early Gnostic Christians, because her analysis is very eloquent and very deep. She emphasizes that there's a great tendency in humanity. People want to adhere to an, out, uh, an outer religious form without really understanding their inherent mysteries. So there's always been a division between two spheres, outward religious forms and inner mystical meaning. This is a binary that's been studied and documented by many scholars. Some very renowned individuals like Gershom Sholem, who was a German-Israeli philosopher. He made Kabbalah very popular for academics. Some valuable history that one can learn, but obviously one has to discriminate what the scholars assume, but also what we have known from experience, because they're different. These domains constitute the esoteric and public religious forms the secret meaning of a tradition and its outward symbols. So, classes of people have developed in relation to this binary. One which is made up of dogma and the other from direct experience. In other words, one group has been initiated into these mysteries and the majority merely adhere to a structure, a code, a ritual system, a belief system without verification. I'll read for you her quote at length. There naturally sprang up a keen rivalry between the two types of Christians. Those who had accepted the teaching of our Lord without any previous mystery training depended entirely upon spiritual intuition and good works. Those who were already accustomed to the methods of the mysteries sought to express the Christian truths in the language of the esoteric philosophy of their day. The first chapter of the Gospel according to John is an excellent example of the process whereby men already highly trained in mystical knowledge 
correlated the new teaching with that which was already familiar to them. In this gospel, we see the influence of the Greek schools of initiation, but in, in the apocalypse, we see the influence of Kabbalistic thought. The Gnostic schools were the Christian mysteries, made by initiates of other mystery schools who had become converted to Christianity and sought to establish within the Christian dispensation the methods to which they were accustomed. For those who are not familiar, Kabbalah constitutes the mystical teachings of esoteric Judaism, which can inform our understanding of Gnostic Christianity, its inception, its meaning. This is because Christianity has Jewish roots. Jesus was a rabbi. He was in a scene, as we're going to examine in later quotes. Therefore, if we want to understand the Gnostics, the esoteric Christian tradition, we need to know the esoteric Jewish tradition from which it sprung, without exception. Likewise, Dion Fortune also emphasized something very interesting, that Gnostic Christianity was formed by initiates from different esoteric groups. These are people who already possessed knowledge. They had spiritual development. Therefore, they recognized within the newly emerging esoteric Christian traditions their inherent mysteries. These were encoded, they were conveyed, and they were taught within the new religious movement. As is the tendency with modern humanity, many new adherents to Christianity did not want to engage with the difficult task of learning Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical science, which informs esoteric Christianity. The study of Kabbalah consists of the archetypal nature of the Hebrew letters, their symbology, what they represent, divine numerology, and many intuitive symbols. Instead, certain followers of public Christianity either ignored or they removed such roots. They wanted to make their tradition more acceptable. And as a result, they sterilized Christianity. I'll read for you Dion Fortune again. In the struggle between the two types of Christians, the initiates and the non-initiates, the latter eventually gained the day, and forthwith the order for persecution and abolition went forth against the mysteries of Jesus. The orthodox element then gradually developed, as was inevitable, something of a mystery system of their own in the sacraments, which are ritual magic pure and simple, as is agreed even by such authority as Evelyn Underhill. But with the development of the sacramental system did not, unfortunately, go the metaphysical interpretation thereof. Superstition has been defined as the use of a form whose significance has been forgotten. The sacraments, instead of being the symbol systems of the mysteries of Jesus, approach perilously near to vain observance in the hands of those who regard them with superstitious awe rather than an understanding of their psychological and esoteric significance. Christianity, as with all religions, is composed and conveyed through the language of symbols, abstractions, within philosophy, within allegory, within archetypes. If you don't believe me, look at the verses within the Bible, the New Testament, where Jesus says he speaks in parables for those who understand, for those who are initiated. Modern Christians interpret their scriptures literally, and they perform and observe rituals without really comprehending the deeper reality, the significance, 
what their teachings and rituals communicate in a spiritual level and a psychological level, more importantly. For Gnostics, rituals are really powerful. They are a medium for developing and awakening our full potential. We have ceremonies that we practice that which encode and empower and represent the path itself within its mystical allegory. Now, what some have denominated magic is the capacity of the consciousness to exert divine influence upon humanity. This term magic is often denigrated today. People don't understand its original roots. It comes from the Indo-European root word mag, or magush, meaning priest. A real magician is a priest. And there are also, in the Gnostic Church, priestesses. Because men are not the only source of authority, of spiritual guidance, of wisdom. In fact, a real priest needs his priestess in order to be a priest. This has to do with the Gnostic Mysteries of Chastity, which is uh, the next lecture in this course. Now, real magic is learning to influence others through divinity for a positive purpose, to elevate the soul of others. Through training with spiritual practices, we can develop this capacity. We can develop the intuitive capacity for comprehending scripture. And we can also strengthen our ability to express a superior way of being. Real compassion. Not the hallmark cards of holidays and gifts and sentimentalism. But loving so much that we even forgive our worst enemies like Jesus on the cross. We can really express states of compassion and love, which are facilitated through Gnostic ritual, ceremonies and practices that we have in our tradition. But unfortunately for many Christians, their traditions have been sterilized, as I said. They're really infertile. Many Christians like to say they are born again, but really if you look at their teaching, which is divorced from its Jewish roots, there's really not much fertility there, especially in relation to sexual aspects of this knowledge, which are studied in relation to alchemy, as we're going to explain. Their traditions no longer convey effective methods for bridging the divine and the personal worlds. Many who found intellectual or emotional or practical deficiencies in Christianity flee to other religions. They run away. And this is really sad. Because there's something within Christian dispensation for Westerners, which is valuable. But when that teaching no longer reflects its original patrimony, its essence, then people become disillusioned. They leave. Now, rather than abandon one's Christian heritage, if one grew up Christian, one can learn to appreciate it deeply. One can find sustenance within that through the rich intellectual and spiritual sciences of Kabbalah and alchemy which inform its heart. As Dion Fortune states, Consequently, there is an unabridged gulf in our modern Christianity between the mysticism of its deep spiritual truths and the symbolic and magical ceremonial of its ritual. This gulf, it is the task of the modern mystery schools to bridge. 
These, however, have in many cases re-illumined their fires at an eastern altar, so that the bridge they build does not lead to Christian contacts of the West. Those are their followers who seek initiation, instead of having revealed to them the deeper issues of their own faith, have to change their religion and follow other masters. How are we of the West, therefore, to bridge this gulf? We must do what the original Gnostics did, seek to express in the metaphysical language of the mysteries the teachings of our Lord, and thereby establish an esoteric Christian school, the initiation of the West. The Gnostics drew their inspiration from two main sources, the mysteries of Greece and the mysticism of Israel, the Kabbalah, with which our Lord was obviously very familiar. These are the sources wherein we shall find the mental and magical interpretation of our religion, which shall supply the missing keys. The elements which were discarded from Christianity must be replaced if it is to become a true wisdom religion. And unless it can answer to the needs of the intellect as well as, the, as of the heart, those who need the food of the intellect rather than the heart will seek it elsewhere, and we cannot blame them. Kabbalah is one of the primary codes in which the Gnostic Gospels were written. Represented in the book of Genesis and the Gnostic Gospels as the tree of life in Eden. It is a map of our internal and external universe. It is the structure of consciousness within every dimension. This knowledge flourished openly, or better said, we could say secretly, within Jewish mystical circles, but Judaism is not its sole patrimony. Each spiritual tradition contains the same elements. Some of those predominate within a specific culture, within a given time or place or language. The Jewish tradition dealt very deeply within the Kabbalistic teachings. Just as Buddhism flourished with its analytical insights into meditation. However, this doesn't mean that Buddhism is devoid of Kabbalah or Kabbalah is devoid of meditation. Each tradition encompasses the other. They embody the same principles. Much in the same way that water changes shape within different cups. The water is the same. Christianity has its roots in Judaism. But since its roots were removed from it, Christianity has lost its soil. Kabbalah is the practical tool for navigating spiritual experience. It is a way to understand our reality and our relationship with divinity. Dion Fortune states in her book, The Mystical Kabbalah, It, the tree of life, is a glyph, that is to say, a composite symbol, which is intended to represent the cosmos in its entirety and the soul of man as related thereto. And the more we study it, the more we see that it is an amazingly adequate representation. We use it as the engineer or the mathematician uses his sliding rule to scan and calculate the intricacies of existence, visible and invisible, in external nature or the hidden depth of the soul. The Kabbalistic cosmology is the Christian gnosis. Without it, we have an incomplete system in our religion. And it is this incomplete system which has been the weakness of Christianity. The early fathers, in the homely metaphor, threw away the baby with the bathwater. A very cursory acquaintance with the Kabbalah serves to show that here we have the essential keys to the riddles of scripture in general and the prophetic books in particular. This map depicts ten spheres. These are known as sephiroth in Hebrew, emanations, which emerge from the transcendent divinity 
or as the Gnostics denominate Agnostos Theos, the unknowable God, from the most rarefied states of being to the most condensed and conditioned material states. The Gnostics refer to the origin of spiritual life and light as Barbello, from the Aramaic language. Bar means sun, S-O-N, while bel signifies sun, S-U-N. Christ, represented by Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the solar divinity, is therefore the embodiment of heavenly light, of compassion, which permeates all the spheres, the eternal realms, the sephiroth, or the aeons, and the latter which can also signify any inhabitant of such dimensions, those who have mastered those realms. Barbello can also be referenced as the solar absolute, the Ain Sof Or above this tree of life, which means in Hebrew the limitless light, the uncreated, the unmanifested potentiality to be. It is the source and origin of all existing manifested things, represented by these ten Sephiroth or spheres, these heavens. All of this emerges because of the essential and eternal compassion of Christ, which is that light, the Ain Zophor Barbello. Gnostics have referenced the Absolute above this diagram as Pronoia, the forethought of God, which is a pure cosmic abstraction which is not yet materialized. It's not yet in manifestation. The Jewish mystics have referred to the unmanifested divine as Elohim and the creator demiurge as Elohim. This duality between an unmanifested cosmic potential and an intelligent but often denigrated creative host or demiurge is very often depicted in the Gnostic Gospels. Each sphere relates to different dimensions of nature in accordance with the densities and materiality of them. The more subtle and rarefied are at the top and the most dense is below. As you see with Malkut in Hebrew, the kingdom, the physical world, our physical body. Above that we have different realms and spheres which are more subtle to perceive but are able to be verified through meditation. I won't go through the meaning of all these different Sephiroth because that will be the purpose of this course. We'll be unpacking Gnostic scripture in relation with Kabbalah and alchemy. So we can access these higher realms when the physical body is asleep, when we experience dreams. But rather than enter such states with a fragmentary awareness or just complete unconsciousness, the Gnostics learn to enter those realms with lucidity, with full awareness, with complete intentionality, with development, so that we can take advantage of those states, such perceptions, in order to receive divine wisdom. We can learn to speak with the divine, including all the masters of these celestial realms, the aeons, the divine hierarchies, who can grant us the capacity for transcendence or make us pay what we owe, before the archons, the hierarchs of the law. 
which in Eastern traditions are known as the Lords of Karma. They work with the creative demiurge, the host of gods and goddesses that manage, that manage and manifest all the laws of nature, whether for good or for ill. Just as there are physical and societal laws, divinity also enforces superior laws that we have to learn to comprehend and follow if what we want is to achieve liberation. Like Sophia in the Gnostic myth, ascending up through 13 repentances towards the source, which is the aim, the nothingness in Hebrew. Notice that you have 10 spheres and you have three realms above that. So that makes a total of 13. The 13 repentances of Pistis Sophia, if you've read the Gnostic Bible. So all that relates to the tree of life. It's very deep, very important. It's All of it is mapped. And to really become skilled meditators, we use this graphic to help understand our experiences and know what to do in our path. Kabbalah has its twin sister. This is alchemy. It's the other tree of the Garden of Eden. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge, Kabbalah and alchemy, are not specific literal trees in Mesopotamia. These are symbols. In scripture, geography has often served as a code for deeper spiritual realities in order to escape detection, persecution, and death, as we saw with the Spanish Inquisition. Alchemy is a rich tradition. It encodes a lot of knowledge. But it's not a literal science of transforming lead into gold. It's a symbol of how we use energy, how we transform the densities of our suffering personality into the lightness and gold of a liberated essence, a pure consciousness. There's some interesting correlations between the Tree of Life and the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which we're going to examine, some of the etymologies here. The term Nag or Naga reminds us of a serpent from the Sanskrit Naga. Nagas in Buddhism are renowned as elemental beings of nature who live within and empower nature itself. They are depicted as having the lower body of a snake and a humanoid torso. They often dwell at bodies of water in lakes, rivers especially. Uh, my wife, who uh, before coming to Chicago, she was often praying to the Nagas by the rivers where she lived in order to receive internal assistance. Uh, they have a very concrete reality. They're very beautiful souls that can help us. But importantly for us in this lecture, we're talking about the serpentine form of these elemental creatures. And the serpent is an ancient symbol. It can refer to our creative energy, which has the power to enliven our spirituality or to damn it, to destroy it. We find this evidenced by the duality of the tempting serpent and the serpent of bronze that healed the Israelites in the wilderness. Nag, spelled backwards in Hebrew, spells Gan, Gimel Nun, which is a garden. Such a garden of Eden, the Hebrew term for bliss, is not a literal place. It's a psychological and spiritual state of being. Hamadi in Arabic 
means praiseworthy. One who praises God with roots in Ahmad or Muhammad, the praised, commendable, laudable. Therefore, the Mahamadi scriptures are the esoteric knowledge of the serpent, of the praiseworthy serpent, the bronze serpent of Moses that can heal the soul. These are symbols. That energy which is very subtle and terrifying for many can be trained and elevated within our physiology in order to empower our consciousness. Rather than exclusively represent an evil tendency to be shunned, as is done by many superstitious people, the serpentine creative energies, when they're harnessed and controlled with love, provide happiness and a genuine awakening. What matters is that we utilize, symbolically, the metals of bronze. This is an amalgamation of copper and tin. Copper is feminine and tin is masculine. Venus and Jupiter, when corresponding astrologically to those planets related to those metals. This demonstrates how a woman and a man with within the Edenic bliss of sexual union within a marriage can overcome temptation. They can perform actions, sexual behaviors that are praiseworthy before God. This is the original meaning of Adam and Eve in the garden. A man and a woman naked in a garden before God. Obviously, this is very sexual. But it's emphasizing that there is two paths that open up for the primordial couple. The archetypical man and woman. This science has been designated sexual alchemy. It's been known as sexual magic within our tradition. Where a couple who are married can utilize their union to achieve genuine religion. They can achieve return, reunion with divinity. Now, Gnosticism is a specific doctrine of the initiates, primarily Kabbalah and alchemy, as I stated. All religions contain the science of these two trees, although they're in code. These sciences are the absolute synthesis of religion. When you really reduce a religion to its core, you arrive at a sexual trope. Everything else is extemporaneous. This spiritual knowledge is represented by water. And knowledge is fluidic. It flows like a river. And oftentimes through history, especially in the past ages, this esoteric secret Christianity was often flowing like a rivulet or a ripple, often still, unperturbed, like in a reservoir underground. But now this knowledge is being given openly like a torrent. Very fierce, which we find in writings by the author Samael and Vior. He wrote about Gnosticism since the 1950s and was really the first to explicitly discuss teachings about early Christianity, about Buddhism, about all religions that were previously prohibited to discuss. His most prevalent thesis is that all religions have a sexual basis, a sexual essence, which is the most expedient method for spiritual intense transformation. It's found precisely within the relationship between husband and wife. This is known as sexual alchemy, how a marital union grounded in divine love with an ethical fulfillment 
within the highest spiritual ideals, within discipline, within purity, within compassion for suffering. This results in the creation of an angel, a master, a prophet. Some have qualified Samalan Vior's work as neo-Gnostic, in that his writings are an innovation. Yet this is a pleonism. His teachings regarding the essential practices of the Gnostics are not new. They've been presented throughout all religions, without exception. To recognize this fact merely takes study, but unfortunately people don't want to. It's even more evident when you really practice and experience the science for yourself, and then really a lot of clarity emerges in relation to abstract symbols and religious allegories, which might seem very superficial and dumb in a literal sense, but really is the spirit of the letter that vivifies. Some people reject Samalan Vior because his work is not just isolated to the first Christians, but is extensive to all religions. Many people don't accept the universal religion at the heart of all faiths, which Samalan Vior denominated in Gnosis. It's the experience and knowledge of divine truth from witnessing for oneself. He explains the following in his lecture, The Gnostic Institutions. There is Gnosis in the Buddhist doctrine in the Tantric Buddhism from Tibet, in the Zen Buddhism from Japan, in the Chan Buddhism of China, in Sufism, in the whirling dervishes, in the Egyptian, Persian, Chaldean, Pythagorean, Greek, Aztec, Mayan, Inca, etc. wisdom. If we carefully study the Christian Gospels, we will find in them Pythagorean mathematics, the Chaldean and Babylonian parable, and the formidable Buddhist moral. The highest form of spiritual knowledge is alchemy, This was conserved in secret. This knowledge was kept hidden, was maintained secretly amongst the early Christian groups, because it is volatile. It is powerful. It is controversial. It is a practice that requires the renunciation of our deepest egotistical and sexual drives, transforming sexual instinct into something divine. It is something pure. It is something sacred, creative, divine. We now have the opportunity to explain and learn knowledge that was reserved for the most developed and earnest of practitioners. This knowledge was represented in the Bible in symbols in relation with alchemy. Wasn't Christ's first miracle in transforming water into wine at a marriage? Christ taught sexual alchemy to be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everybody knows this. But the same sexual act, but transformed, elevated, and that which is born of the spirit through that transformed act is spirit. This is how common intercourse can become spiritual. How lust, which is contrary to love, is transmuted and transformed into divine compassion, conscious love, our soul. This is the basis of Gnosticism in all religions. Some people might ask, how is it that Gnosticism in all religions yet should not be adulterated? We can say that the sexual teachings constitute the synthesis of all religions. The religious forms have died, but if we have the synthesis, the key, 
We can unlock these traditions and give them vibrancy, give them life. Religious authorities have expunged this synthesis as best it could. Not knowing the full import of certain religious symbols that were retained within the Bible, within scripture. They passed censorship. Especially in books like the book of Revelation, which is so Kabbalistic and symbolic that the censors just didn't get it. But because they didn't want to remove the teachings of the Lord, they kept it in the Bible. Even though it's very difficult to understand without and impossible to understand without this key. Therefore, to approach traditions without this basis is, is mistaken. Samuel and Vior continues. The system of teaching which was adopted by Jesus was the system of the Essenes. Certainly, the Essenes were 100% Gnostic. Therefore, the four Gospels are Gnostic Gospels, and they cannot be understood without the Mythuna, sexual magic, alchemy. It is absurd to adulterate Gnosis with different teachings, because the Christian Gospel prohibits adultery. It is absurd to conceive of Gnosis without the Mythuna. We can drink the wine of Gnosis, divine wisdom, within a Greek, Buddhist, Sufi, Aztec, Egyptian, etc. cup. Yet we must not adulterate this delicious wine with strange doctrines. So Gnosis is within all religious forms, but not all forms have retained their essence. All religions have degenerated, unfortunately. Therefore, it can be difficult to discern their original teachings if we lack an education in these studies, and especially without practical training in its methods. So despite the fact that Gnosticism is flourishing again, there have been many disagreements among and about Gnostic groups since the times of Jesus, including today in Salman Vior's movement. For example, the Nazarenes were, according to Blavatsky, the same as the St. John Christians, called the Mandeans or Sabians. They designate Christ a false messiah and only recognize John the Baptist, whom they call the Great Nazar. You also find the following from the Three Mountains by Salman Vior. The Nazarenes were known as Baptists, Sabians, and Christians of St. John. Their belief was that the Messiah was not the Son of God, but simply a prophet who wanted to follow John. And also from the lecture, Alchemical Symbolism of the Nativity of Christ. The Nazarenes were known as Baptists, Sabians, and Christians of St. John. Their belief was that the Messiah, Jesus, was not the Son of God, but simply a prophet who wanted to follow John. In those days, there were disputes among the Baptists, the Essenes, and others. There is great diversity even today in so-called Gnostic groups, whether from Samoan Vior or not. Many of them fight with each other. They denominate the others as heretics, much like Irenaeus, Hippolytus, and Athanasius, and other heresiologists towards Christians whose doctrinal purity they questioned. For example, Irenaeus and Hippolytus were heresy hunters, they wrote against the Gnostics. Yet what's interesting is that Samon Vior refers to them as Gnostics. This can get, can get confusing, right? But rather than become confused by this apparent or glaring discrepancy, or merely reject Samon Vior, it would be better to really reevaluate our definitions, our lexicon, our knowledge about what a Gnostic is. Scholars have even argued whether to really call the Nag Hammadi scriptures Gnostic. 
since they don't reflect one ideology or group, but different Gnosticisms or movements. The traditions from which ancient Gnostic texts emerged were highly varied and unfamiliar to modern scholars because certain bishops really sought to dismiss and erase any viewpoint that conflicted with their own. Although the term Gnosticism was appropriated to refer to heretically designated sects, the term Gnosis is different for others. While there are elements and teachings of truths throughout different schools, it really is disingenuous to assume that there is a homogenous worldview to a constellation of very nuanced groups and systems. For example, many believe Gnostics were dualists who thought the world was created by an evil power with a very fatalistic view of its god or demiurge. However, this philosophy is only a small range of knowledge within the spectrum of Gnosis, and it doesn't really constitute the entirety of its teachings. This is because every religion possesses Gnosis, direct personal testimony of divine reality. Even within a given religion, there's a tremendous range of knowledge, a tremendous range of practice, let alone varying messengers who all founded different schools. You know, basically, this had occurred even with early Christianity, which was composed of various doctrines or Christianities, plural, many of whom were competing with one another, like basically all religions today, and especially Salman Vior's Gnostic movement. Many groups are competing with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we should condemn, that we should shun, that we should ignore those with whom we disagree. But we shouldn't go to the other extreme as well. We shouldn't elevate Gnostic initiates on a pedestal, to a palanquin, to a throne where we could admire those who are really riddled with flaws. Likewise, we should not reject those people, these individuals, because they still were vehicles, however imperfect, of divine teachings. This might mean disassociating with certain schools that are not maintaining ethical discipline, and finding a Gnostic institution that resonates with us. But sadly, some potential students perceive the hypocrisy of certain groups, and thereafter they leave. They often associate Salman Vior with the failures of his students. This has happened with every religion, without exception, to the point that now many individuals have traumas that are associated with the prophets. We can say that this is really a tremendous crime against the soul. Therefore, if we are instructors or missionaries providing guidance to others, we have a tremendous responsibility to maintain in our body, in our speech, in our mind. Also, there's a need to remove the psychological tendency to think that only one group is real or authentic and that the rest are wrong. As if instructors or people, as if aspirants are not complicated. As if we're not struggling, as if we're not afflicted despite our best intentions, our most noble ideals. Until we overcome our own karma, our delusions, our assumptions, our egotism, our beliefs, even to a minor degree, we cannot even begin to understand or appreciate reality. 
Since we have ego, we are all susceptible to liability. We make misinterpretations, we make, make mistakes, no matter how authentic our teachers may be, because we are fascinated by desires and we cannot see the truth in that way. So there's value to be taken from many Gnostic instructors and scriptures. Even though there are going to be different nuanced interpretations, often open disagreements between them. We have to remove the fanaticism that dictates within a rigid, false dichotomy that only one organization has it right and the rest are condemned. Now, we have to avoid extremes. Neither blind adherence to a dogma nor its vehement rejection mean that we have arrived at wisdom. In fact, it's the opposite. If we're not examining our position, if we're not scientifically investigating these things through personal inquiry, then we're not making any ground. There is a saying amongst the Sufis that was documented in Al-Kushari's Al-Risala, the principles of Sufism, that when the Sufis disagree with one another, <clears throat> the harmony and the unity of the group is maintained. Since uh, each believer helps the other. As mentioned in the Hadith, a believer to another believer is like two hands. One washes the other, correcting each other. However, when the Sufis all agree, then there's a problem. Often this occurs in the form of a dogmatic conformity. So a balance has to be reached. You have to follow your heart, your intuition. What matters is that you rely on your, con <clears throat> your conscious experiences, your knowledge, your meditations to discern and guide you. Initiation is deeply personal. It's not found in a group. It's found in yourself. It is necessary to study from proven and pure sources. But for that, you need to awaken to personally verify their efficacy, whether or not they're expedient, they're effective, whether or not they're worthy. Study from those masters who are proven, the founders of different religions. We have to be very careful with what we ingest, spiritually speaking. Now, even if we tell you that certain scriptures are pure or not, only you can really understand and evaluate these truths from experience. As Salman Vior rightly indicated, the Gnostic must not be a fanatic. We must study everything in order to reject the useless and accept the useful. Gnosis is not against any religion, school, order, or sect. We have fought for the moral purification of many schools, religions, or religions, schools, orders, and sects. We've never been against any religion, school, or sect. We know that humanity is divided into groups and that each group needs its own system of particular instruction. All religions, schools, orders, and sects are precious pearls that are strong on the golden thread of divinity. We'll conclude with a reference to the book, The Major Mysteries, which we invite you to study if you wish to learn more about esoteric Christianity, the path of initiation, and a foundation for approaching the Gnostic Gospels. We conclude with this statement by Samal and Vior. If the Lord had not been crucified, the destiny of the Western world would have been another. We would now have sublime, enlightened rabbis everywhere preaching Christic esotericism, the union of Christic esotericism, secret Jewish Kabbalah, and holy alchemy would have completely illuminated and transformed the entire world. Yes, the mysteries of, mysteries of Levi would have shone with the, the light of Christ. Gnosis, Da'at, would have magnificently shown everywhere.
If you have any questions, I invite you to ask them. We have a question. Do you hold events on specific sexual transmutation practices? I've been practicing for several years and I'm looking to go deeper. Thank you. If you go on to Glorian.org, there is under courses a distance learning course, which if you've not registered for that, you should. We have practices and exercises that we do as group as a group online right now uh, due to the pandemic, but also for students who are long distance where you can participate in different sexual transmutation practices. There was recently one given uh, by my wife for Hamsa Pranayama. So you could study that exercise that was uploaded to our website under practices or guided practices more specifically. But yes, we do have online practices that we do where you can participate and ask questions of instructors in case you want to go deeper into the exercises themselves. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them in the chat box. We have a question. Can you expound on the meaning of the Demiurge and the Archons? I was hoping someone would ask that. I have intended to really talk about this topic in future lectures especially, but I can relate to you some basic understandings of the Demiurge and the Archons. Now the term Demiurge is from the Greek. It means worker or craftsman. The Demiurgos or the artificer is a architect who supposedly, supposedly in accordance with Gnostic Gospels, built the universe. Even the Freemasons derive the meaning of supreme architect from this word. Plato even talked about it in the Timaeus, about the creator God. The Gnostic Gospels speak very negatively about the Demiurge. And this has produced some confusion for people because in our tradition, we talk very highly about the Demiurge. Now, in order to explain how our Gnostic tradition refers to the Demiurge or creative architect of the universe in contradistinction to the transcendent deity, the unmanifested deity, as we explained, I'll relate to you some excerpts from Salman Vior, his writings. This is from the Three Mountains. Esotericism admits the existence of a Logos, or a creator, or a collective creator of the universe, a Demiurge architect. It is unquestionable that such a Demiurge is not a personal deity, as many mistakenly suppose, but rather a host of Dion Kohans, angels, archangels, and other forces. He also states in the Gnostic Bible, the Pisces Sophia Unveiled. It is impossible to symbolize or allegorize the unknowable one, or in Gnostic, or in Gnostic terms, agnostos theos, the unmanifested, the absolute, within Kabbalah, the ain, ain sof, ain sof, or. Nevertheless, the manifested one, the knowable Elohim, <clears throat> excuse me, the knowable Elohim can be allegorized or symbolized 
The manifested Elohim is constituted by the Demiurge creator of the universe. The great invisible forefather is Elohim with an A, followed by Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. The unknowable divinity, Elohim. The great triple-powered God is the Demiurge creator of the universe. Multiple perfect unity. The creator logos is the holy triamatsikamno, the verb, the great word. The three spaces of the first mystery are the regions of the Demiurge creator. So if you study Kabbalah, you know that the creator is precisely the top three sephiroth of the tree of life, which is Keter, Chokmah, Binah, crown, wisdom, and intelligence. These are the trinity of Christianity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are not people, but forces within divinity. All of the masters and angels who have perfected themselves are the demiurge. They create the universes, the solar systems, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, the infinites. Those are divine beings who are perfect. They're beyond good and evil. They are a perfect multiple unity. They are individual masters who are in charge of governing the mechanical laws of nature. Now, what confuses people when Samalan VR mentions this is that the Gnostic Gospels, such as the Nag Hammadi or the Dead Sea Scrolls, refer to the Demiurge as a tyrant god, as negative, as oppressive. And this is really interesting. It reveals something very nuanced that we have to examine in ourselves. People and truth do not like divinity. In fact, we all like to blame God in some degree. Our egos and our defects and vices and errors do not want to take responsibility for their culpability, for their errors. And so we like to externalize. There are many people, I'm sure, from our own experience who we know, whether in social circles, who blame God for everything or blame divinity. There are people in the Gnostic movement who blame Archangel Sakaki for the fall of humanity and many other things. People blame God for everything, for the state of the world, for humanity's failure, for its degeneration, without willing to accept one's own responsibility for our own situation. We have our own agency. Yes, there are influences in nature which are detrimental, that are mechanical, that are oppressive. But at the same time, those can only influence us so long as we subject to them. Now, the Elohim or the Demiurge, the gods, the divine, the angels, the masters, the prophets, they are beyond good and evil. They're beyond the mechanical forces of nature, which are represented by the lower Sephiroth of the tree of life. And because we are subjected to those laws, such as evolution and devolution, mechanical ways of being, we suffer and we are oppressed. Now, the Demiurge or the creative host of Elohim, they manage those forces, whether for good or for evil. They're beyond good and evil, so to speak. Now, what's interesting is that the Demiurge, the creative host of Elohim, manage everything. Even the hell realms are governed by the angels and the gods. So it's interesting that the Gnostic Gospels, they blame the Demiurge for the fall of humanity. And there's some credence to that. But in the sense that they are only managers of forces that we choose to fulfill in ourselves. So we are fully responsible for our own errors. We can't blame anybody else. But the tendency in people in spiritual studies is to blame divinity. 
So this is why the Gnostic Gospels sometimes depict the Demiurge as a very negative and oppressive figure that, as someone mentioned in the chat box, is like a judge. But it's true that while we are judged by the divine, he also teaches and trains and tests us so that we can grow spiritually. Now, the archons is a different term. It comes from archaeos, the law, arcanum, arcana, laws, or law and laws, plural. The words like archangel have this prefix, which relate to the rulers, the different inhabitants or judges or lords of the different aeons, the different sephiroth of the tree of life. In our tradition, we refer to them as the lords of karma. Now, in the myth of the Gnostics, often in the scriptures, such as the Pisces Sophia, which Salman Vyar commented upon, explains the path of the soul in ascending back to the origin, to the absolute, to the divine. And in that process, one has to answer and repent before the different archons, who are the different lords of karma, who basically help us to be accountable for our deeds. So for many people, it's a very painful situation spiritually when you want to enter the higher realms of divinity, but you are obstructed by the law, which is cause and effect. We reap what we sow. And as we repent and change, we learn to transform our situation and receive the blessings of those different beings. So they're kind of like the guards of the different gates or the different spheres of this diagram of the Kabbalah. Archons are the lords of karma, but there's also a dual significance to this too, which we have to be very careful about. Now, there are some beings that call themselves archons, which are not divine. Instead of being heavenly divinities, cosmic hierarchs, angels or gods, within the pure sense, there are beings who are hierarchs of the hell realms, of infernal states. We call them in our studies black magicians. And personally, I've even met many beings like that who refer to themselves as archons. So that term could be dual. So when you read the Gnostic scriptures, it's important to be very flexible and intuitive because different Gnostic authors or originators of those scriptures wrote in accordance with specific context and in many layers and dimensions and meaning. So it's very deep. So one of the essential themes of Gnostic scriptures is that there is a duality. There is the unmanifested divinity and the manifested divinity. And that the reason why we're in this big mess is because we are struggling to reconcile the manifested with the unmanifested. So if you want to learn more about some of the philosophical nuances of that teaching, which of course will take a very long time because it's very profound and difficult, study the Gnostic Bible, the Pisces Sophia Unveiled, which was commented upon by Samal and Vior. We have that available at glorian.org. So the question is, are the archons considered evil or just misunderstood by our limited human understanding? Again, that's a, it's both. We often confuse our helper with our enemy. When life gives us difficult situations or circumstances, we have to face karma, challenging ordeals. The most instinctual reaction is to complain and to resist it. Even though we're just receiving a situation and ordeal to help us, often given to us by the lords of karma, the archons, the heavenly beings. 
but because they're difficult situations which are meant to test us, to help us to grow, we should learn to appreciate karma and not to blaspheme. Because when we complain and suffer and condemn others, we exacerbate the issue. The karma gets deepened instead of rectified. So the archons in that sense are really, you know, divine beings, but also we misunderstand them, those heavenly angels, because of our conditioned state. We don't recognize that they're helping us. But also there are beings that call themselves archons, but they're really of the lower realms, the inverted tree of life of the Kabbalah. We're going to, we're going to go very deeply into these nuances with different scriptures in this course, but I invite you to study again the works of Salman Vior, especially the Gnostic Bible. Any other questions? Uh, one other point to make, though, I will reference is um, in relation to this duality, we have to remember that nature is dual. There is good and evil in nature. Eat or be eaten. Conquer or be conquered. There is oppressor and opportunity. If you've studied the opera The Ma uh, Magic Flute by Mozart, you find this exemplified in The Queen of the Night, where she provides the flute and the magic bells for Tamino and Papageno, the heroes of the opera, in order to save the daughter of the Queen of the Night. She is representative of the forces of nature, which nourish us and support us in the beginning. But if we're not comprehending and conquering those forces in ourselves, we are in danger of becoming its slave. So I invite you to study, especially that opera, which you know we're going to eventually talk about on our website as well, on the course, The Secret Teachings of Opera. Relate, deeply relates to this topic. Any other questions? We have no more questions. I'd like to thank you for attending. Appreciate you for listening and be on the lookout for future lectures in this course. So I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.